This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. I want to be very clear. The scope of these measures will be time-limited, geographically targeted, as well as reasonable and proportionate. After several weeks of protests, occupation, and border crossing blocking, the Canadian government took the unprecedented step of invoking the Emergencies Act. The decision sparked a wide range of reactions, with some arguing that government action was both justified and long overdue, while others expressed doubt that it was appropriate given that the border crossings were largely cleared by the time the act was invoked, and police finally took action in Ottawa days later, seemingly without much need for the additional federal powers. The situation is rapidly evolving and still being debated in the House of Commons at the time that this podcast was recorded. Dr. Leah West is an assistant professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. One of Canada's leading experts on national security law, she previously served as counsel with the Department of Justice in the National Security Litigation and Advisory Group. She joined me on Thursday, February 17th, hours before the Ottawa police began taking firm action and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association launched a legal challenge against the federal use of the Emergencies Act. Dr. West joins me on the podcast to discuss the rules surrounding the Emergencies Act and the implications of the government's recent move to invoke it. Leah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I, I can only imagine how busy you are right now. We're recording this on Thursday, several days after the government announced it was going to introduce the Emergencies Act, and uh, you've been so active on these issues, and, and the debate continues, and I mentioned that we're recording it uh, at this moment. By the time this podcast drops, things may have changed, but uh, this is an opportunity to walk through what all of this means and some of the implications, at least as, as we stand at this moment in time. Uh, usually on this podcast, I talk about things like civil liberties, platform regulation, cryptocurrency rules. All of those issues get touched on with this, but why don't we start first with the foundation? Can you start off by explaining some of the basics of the Emergencies Act, and particularly its origins, and then we can get into, I suppose, some of the standards or requirements for it to be invoked? Yeah, sure. So the Emergencies Act is is and has been Canada's um, most powerful emergency legislation since 1988. It replaced the War Measures Act, which was, uh, you know, subject to abuse, uh, arguably, and also led to some of Canada's worst actions on behalf of, uh, you know, defending against emergencies. It was uh, the War Measures Act was deployed in World War One and World War Two, and in the FLQ crisis in 1970. But it didn't have the same checks and balances on government that this current act has. So the current act is is much different from the War Measures Act. It is much more narrowly tailored to the circumstance the government is trying to counter or um, overcome. Um, And there's a lot of checks and balances included in it. And the thresholds for invocation are very high. So the Emergencies Act generally... um, 
creates four different types of emergencies or it delineates four different types of emergencies. Um, and if either one of those um, emergencies is met, uh, cabinet essentially can invoke the act An invocation of the act gives the government um, certain circumscribed powers to manage that specific type of threat. So the type of threat we've been talking about for you know the last two years leading up to this has been a public welfare emergency. So that's the type of emergency that results from disease and natural disasters. And the Emergencies Act creates a, a series of powers that would be necessary to managing that kind of crisis. What we're looking at right now or what the government suggests we're looking at right now is a public order emergency. So invoking that requires meeting a different set of legal thresholds and gives the government a different set of powers. And once the act is invoked by cabinet, um, parliament has to vote um, to confirm the existence of the emergency in, in all cases. Um, and so that's about what we're about to see. So if either the House of Commons or the Senate does not confirm the existence of the emergency, the emergency is immediately revoked. There's other checks here as well. Parliament at any time where there are 10 senators or MPs who want to re-vote on the existence of the emergency can do so. Um, it's limited, time limited, this one in particular to 30 days. And there's a requirement for the establishment of a parliamentary committee to review the measures and, and orders put in place. And there's also a requirement to establish an independent inquiry um, once the emergency ceases that has to table a report on what led to the emergency um, within a year. Okay, so th that, that's really helpful identifying certainly a whole series of some of the checks and balances, both as we as once 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 this once the statute is invoked, and as, as you mentioned, literally as we're recording this, the debate is ongoing as to whether or not the House of Commons will uh, will will approve the the notion that there is an emergency and go to the Senate as well, and then there's the review after the fact. You mentioned that there are, that the statute itself identifies a couple kinds of emergencies. We're dealing with a public order one. What are the, the standards that have to be met? And then we can get into what the, how the government is seeking to justify or say that it meets those standards. Yeah. So it, for it to be a public order emergency, that's a defined term in the act. And a public order emergency is an emergency that arises that's key, an emergency that arises from threats to the security of Canada and that is so serious as to be a national emergency. So there's two other kind of phrases that need to be defined um, from that threshold. Threats to the security of Canada, that's a defined term. It means what is the same thing as where it's defined in the CSIS Act, so the Canadian Security Intelligence Services Act under section two. So um, section two sets out four different types of threats to the security of Canada. Um, so they're sabotage or they're shorthanded to sabotage and espionage, foreign influence, subversion or terrorism. And in this case, the threat to the security of Canada that uh, is being invoked by cabinet is terrorism. The other thing that needs to be defined here is national emergency. And that's actually set out in the Emergencies Act. And there's a couple different criteria that are required to have a national emergency. So first it has to be an 
urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature. That's pretty easy. <laughs> and then you have either uh, an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians and is such a and is of such proportion or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with. So that first kind of uh, type of national emergency has two criteria. So endangers lives, health, or safety of Canadians and has to exceed the capacity of the province. The other type of emergency is one that seriously threatens the ability of the government to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity. So in that second one, we don't have the exceeding the capacity of the province issue to deal with because we're, what we're really talking about there is stuff that's subject to federal jurisdiction. In either case, to have a national emergency, the, those urgent and critical and temporary situations can't uh, be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. So essentially you have to say, there are no other tools in the federal government's tool belt to rectify this situation, to have a national emergency under the act. And um, David, <laughs> sorry, the justice minister, um, I think probably misspoke when he said any other law of Canada meant municipal, provincial, or federal law. Um, any other law of Canada is typically interpreted to mean any other federal, federal law. So we're really talking about the federal government doesn't have any other capacities to address these issues. Okay, there's there's a lot, quite a lot there to unpack. There's a couple of things yes. that, that I wanted to that I wanted to pick up on. The first was you, you mentioned that the government, in terms of the, the the situation that it's relying on, is suggesting this is a terrorism incident. Is there a definition for that? You know, yes. You know, yeah, people, people would look at this and say it's a lot of things. <laughs> I'm not sure people would necessarily say that at least what's taking place in Ottawa right now is an act, is a terrorism act. Yeah, and that's and that's true. And and to be sure uh, when it first came out that the act was going to be invoked. I don't think anybody was celebrating that because it was certainly an act of terrorism. What I heard from most people in support of this was hanging their hats on foreign influence or subversion. But um, so terrorism or to see, the government's been very careful to avoid use of the, the T word, um, is activities within or relating to Canada directed toward or in support of the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property for the purpose of achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective within Canada or a foreign state. So then again, here we have kind of a variety of criteria. So it has to be activities within Canada or relating to Canada, no brainer there, in support of threats or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property, right? Um, and then we have to have those serious threats against purposes of property um, aimed at achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective. So again, I don't think it's uh, questionable here whether or not we've got political objectives <laughs> um, tied to what we're seeing. The question is whether or not we've got the threat or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property. Um, and whether or not, and this is the key issue, it's that threat that is driving the, the national emergency, right? Uh, as opposed to 
the national emergency, creating opportunities for that threat to thrive. Interesting. And I think I think many people would look at this and say, we're, we're anxious to see the government do something. I must admit, I'm not sure whether what we see taking place fits so squarely within this. Does, does the government have to come forward with something more than just saying, this is the basis that we're doing it? Do they have to provide evidence behind that beyond what we happen to watch in the on the news? So yeah, under Section 58 of the Emergencies Act, it spells out what must accompany the motion for confirmation in um, the House of Commons. And that includes an explanation of why the government is in <laughs> or declared a national emergency. So um, the government did table a 14-page document last night. They call it the Section 58 Justification Document. Um, and it lays out um, not as linearly as I would like, so I did my own version, um, but it lays out a series of justifications and facts used to support not only the, the basis for the thresholds being met, um, but also why the specific temporary measures they're suggesting are needed are necessary to dispense with this emergency. Okay, that's that's good to know, and uh, I, I've seen that chart. It's you've done a really good job, uh, sort of breaking a lot of that down. Now, much of the emphasis has been on the blockades, and it's pretty clear, especially for people who've been living in Ottawa, that no one seemed, at many levels of government, it would appear, seemed all that interested in doing all that much for a while. It was really only once stuff started happening at the borders, on the Ambassador Bridge and elsewhere, that really seemed to trigger more action, both actually provincially and certainly federally, and perhaps foreign governments such as the United States had something to do with that as well. Those border crossing issues seem to largely have passed, at least for the moment. You know, how does that that changing situation impact what the government is doing now? Well, that's a really good point, because a lot of what the government um, uses to justify the existence of a national emergency is more on that 3B side of things. So threatens the security, sovereignty, and territorial integrity of Canada. So the security and integrity of Canada's borders. And also they rely heavily on economic security, um, which I think is not what someone like myself looking at the act outside of these fact, this factual context would have considered um, to give rise to a national emergency, but I do see the basis for some sort of justification there. So if the emergency has really been being driven, what gives rise to the threat to Canada's security, sovereignty, and territorial integrity from, you know, the economic impacts of the blockades, well, once those economic impacts of the blockades are gone, I think it's right to question whether or not the emergency persists, um, right? There is certainly a threat that they could return, um, but I think we've seen provinces be capable of using the tools that they have in order to manage that threat. So one could question whether or not um, this is really a necessary invocation of the act. Okay, no, that's fair. And uh, I want to pick up actually on that issue as well. I, I, I note that you have highlighted in the past that there are powers at the provincial level, including Emergencies Act type powers that could be used in this case. Does that fit in here at all? Or is the federal government able to make its case irrespective of the powers that the provinces might have? 
So on that 3B issue, so security, sovereignty, and territorial integrity, whether or not the provinces could deal with it on their own or not isn't a requirement to be met. Um, but where we see that come into play is reliance on 3A, so impacts to security, safety, um, and health of Canadians. And so the, that's where whether or not the province can handle the threat is relevant. Um, and again here, it, some of the justification offers seem a little bit circular to me um, because the government talks about the inability to get tow trucks to move in to deal with um, blockades at the borders, but that wasn't proven to be necessarily required. Um, and there is availability under various provincial emergency orders to order people, for example, to provide tow truck services. Now, interestingly, that is available to the governments of Alberta, to the governments of Manitoba and BC, where we've seen some of the blockades. But Ontario, the, the provincial emergencies orders, says it can authorize people to provide essential service, but doesn't give the government the capacity to order people to provide essential services, which the government leans on in its justification. However, there are other orders um, that could have been used, like, for example, they could, the province of Ontario could requisition property. <laughs> so they could just take people's tow trucks and then have uh, provincial um, employees use them um, if they wanted to, or they could have used that as a threat to get people inside. Like, you can either do this for us or we'll take your trucks and we'll find someone else to do it. Um, so that could have been used if the province was so inclined. And also the provincial emergencies um, legislation in Ontario has a basket clause. It says it, they can do any other thing that they need, they feel necessary. Um, so, you know, compelling people to comply with municipal contracts for services, for example, could have been something they could have done. Health, safety, security of Canadians, that's where you need to prove that it was beyond the capacity of the provinces. And there's only a few things the government is, is leaning on there to justify that. One was the tow trucks. Um, the other was um, the, the sheer fact that it appears that there's no capacity within policing to actually manage the uh, blockades in Ottawa. So they suggest that there's just sheer, sheerly outnumbered and don't have the capacity and resources to properly address it. One could argue uh, that's a lack of enforcement and using the resources you have, not a lack of resources, but uh, I'll take the government at its word. And the, the third thing that they say is that the provinces don't have the financial tools to stop the flow of support to these um, protesters, which allows them to entrench themselves long term. Okay. You know, as, as we drill deeper into some of the justifications i must admit some of them are less compelling than they might appear at first blush but <laughs> uh, nevertheless there's 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 i suppose at a minimum room for some debate yeah those are some of the justifications why don't we talk a bit about what the government intends to do or at least they've said they intend to do yeah. you, you hit on finance a moment ago let's, let's park that for just a moment because that's that's the one that it feels 
like not only will have implications for right now, but could have some significant and longer term implications as well. Yeah. What what other things are they talking about doing, or does it go directly to the the couple of issues you just talked about, tow trucks uh, and more law enforcement support for enforcement purposes? Yeah. So essentially, they um, put out orders and regulations already, um, and those what they put out so far. Um, is not the full extent of what they could do if this uh, emergency is um, is confirmed. So, looking broadly at what at what they've suggested they will do, and not just what they've imposed to date, um, they talk about measures to regulate and prohibit public assembly in certain designated areas, um, where that assembly is expected to lead to a breach of the peace and to limit travel to and from the area. Um, and one of those measures that they've actually done is preventing people from traveling into Canada in order to provide support or to support the uh, protests. Um, again, measures to authorize and compel people to provide essential services. Um, in this case, they talk specifically about um, tow truck drivers and also um, essential services that element of things that they're targeting banks and they're um, enforcing more obligations on uh, financial service providers, um, crowdfunding sites, cryptocurrency, et cetera, to provide, um, to freeze assets. I know we said we were going to park that. Um, <laughs> uh, so we'll get back to that. So they've created offenses around people traveling to certain areas if they violate the limitations. And then essentially they've basically deputized RCMP officers because RCMP officers don't typically, unless they're serving as municipal or provincial police, don't have the capacity to enforce municipal provincial bylaws. Um, they've given them the means to do that. Um, so it's the powers themselves other than some of the financial ones, which could have longer term implications are pretty narrowly tailored. And I haven't heard, and I don't personally have strong feelings about um, the, the limits that these impose on individuals. I think that they're largely in keeping with our criminal law already <laughs> and the limitations imposed on them. So I don't find them overly problematic. Um, there are potential broader issues with some of the financial measures. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we turn to that? You know, yeah. the, and, and, and I, I am inclined to agree with you when you describe support from law enforcement and ensuring that the tow trucks do the, are able to do the jobs that they're supposed to do, or, you know, stronger measures potentially at the border, frankly, all those things feel like the sort of things that they should have been doing already and would have thought they frankly would have had some of the powers to do already at, without, these measures. But yeah. on the financing side, and that's where there's already been a fair amount of attention, and the government is at least initially now, it seems to really be turning some of its attention to, emphasized uh, how they are bringing banks, uh, crypto, cryptocurrency mm -hmm. exchanges, and crowdsourcing uh, sites to participate in all of this and potentially seize various accounts and the like. Can you talk a bit about about some of that, I mean, does all of that happen without any sort of court, court oversight or or anything further as part of this Emergencies Act, its potential seizure of bank accounts or crypto accounts um, and the like uh, as part in response without the kind of oversight we might have otherwise expected? 
Yeah, so the financial measures can be kind of divided into two things. The first one that um, is relatively benign to an extent um, and which we've already heard will be likely uh, extended through actual amendments to existing legislation is bringing crowdfunding um, websites or services and other kind of direct payment sites under the proceeds of crime, anti-money laundering and Terrorism Financing Act. It's a terrible name for an act. Um, but essentially, that's what requires banks right now, banks and, and a number of cryptocurrency um, retailers um, to um, report suspicious transactions um, to FinTrack, for example. Um, so essentially, they're broadening the scope of who is currently covered by the Anti-Terrorism Financing Act um, to include these other organizations. Um, and the other thing that they're doing is essentially saying, um, kind of like what we say when we designate a terrorist entity is that um, it becomes unlawful to deal with these people's assets and property and provide them financial services. Um, so it's something we see applied to terrorist entities. Um, so basically, it becomes uh, an order that if you violate becomes an offense to deal in property of an owner of something that's owned or held or controlled by a designated person. And so a designated person is what someone who's committing an offense under these emergencies orders, um, facilitating any transaction with, with respect to their property or, or funds. Um, making available property or funds or virtual currency to anybody who's been breaking the emergency orders and or providing financial related services to anyone who's been found to be uh, violating. They call them a designated person, but a designated person means somebody who's been violating um, the, the essentially the offenses laid out um, on behalf of the within the emergency orders. So that to do any of that, you don't need to prove in court that someone meets the definition of a designated person. And so that's where you get into this due policy, <laughs> due process issue. Um, but the same goes for a terrorist entity, right? You don't need to prove that someone is uh, a member of a terrorist organization or engages in terrorist activity to uh, freeze their assets. You just need to the bank needs to satisfy themselves that they are someone who is funding a terrorist entity. And whether or not something is a terrorist entity is a decision of, of cabinet essentially based on reasonable grounds. So it is very similar to what we see happen with the finances of individuals. Over the last number of days, we've seen a number of news stories based on hack information obtained through hacks that identify many of the people that have given money to support uh, the act, support the activities, let's say, in Ottawa, the convoy. Mm -hmm. is are, are all of those people looped into this? Is it just the organizers that are looped into this? Um, this? This feels like a pretty slippery slope in terms of just how far this might extend. Yeah, so yes and no. I, I think a careful reading and parsing of the orders is necessary, and the, and the banks are, are quite good at this. So Right now, a designated person, right, which you're not prohibited to give any money or, or financial services or anything to, 
is someone who um, is engaged directly or indirectly with the activities prohibited under the emergency measures. So to me, that's on a going forward basis, right? So you can't be someone designated under the emergency measures before those measures are in place. Um, now, whether banks will be that careful and, you know, timestamp <laughs> when people provided their funding or not, I mean, um, banks are, 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 are known to be risk averse when it comes to this stuff. But to me, it means from the point at which the emergency measures came into place going forward, um, because otherwise you don't have a designated person predating the emergency orders. Um, but that means, okay, what does it mean to support them? Does that mean I, I walked down the, you know, uh, Wellington and provided somebody a Tim Hortons coffee, right? Or I allowed someone to take a shower in my home. Am I now a supporter of a designated person and someone can freeze my bank account, <laughs> right? Like, um, or refuse to provide me with financial services. Um, how broad or narrow that is, is ultimately because, you know, th these terms are pretty vague, uh, is going to be up to the banks to decide. And, uh, you know, the right to banking in Canada is in a charter protected right. Um, and the right to due process with your banking is pretty limited here because it's a service they don't have to provide you. Um, so there could be widespread implications for individuals, but I do think that, um, I think to be consistent with how the orders read, it needs to be something that cons constitutes support from the time the emergency orders were put in place going forward. Okay, it's, it's good to know that there is that, that time element. You know, while I, I think many would accept that Canada's large banks uh, are risk averse and have experience in this area, I'm not sure that the same can be said for crypto exchanges or crowdsourced mm -hmm funding sites. Are, are we basically, or is the government expecting some of the same kinds of behavior from those entities? And is it, you know, do we have some sort of assurance or a sense that, that they'll, they'll be able to operate in the same fashion that one of the major charter banks might? Well, I'm certainly not an expert in crowdfunding and cryptocurrency um, setups and businesses, but I'd imagine that they don't have the same kind of level of infrastructure um, in place to be managing this. And so you might see some pretty um, kind of broad uh, applications of this law um, in an attempt to comply or not great compliance. <laughs> so, I mean, even when we think back to, and, and I, I listened to Jess Davis on this, um, and anybody really interested in this should definitely um, subscribe to her Substack. is that, I mean, even when we first introduced the Anti-Terrorism Act and uh, the terrorism financing legislations, the banks weren't even good at this at the beginning. And there was a lot of false positives, a lot of people captured um, at, at the outset, and things have gotten a lot better over time. So to suggest that in an emergency and um, with short notice that these other types of financial institutions are going to be good quick is, is probably unlikely. Yeah, no, it does sound like it's a significant challenge. I guess the other prospect, especially for many that are not even located in Canada, is simply to ignore the order. You know, are, are yeah. there are there are there are there some sort of measures that Canada has to try to encourage compliance for non-Canadian entities? Or, you know, is is this likely to are we likely to see some sort of shift where 
you know, those that are looking to support, notwithstanding the challenges, those that are receiving the support may have to actually get the get the, the get the revenues, get the get the payments. Uh, we'll look to offshore or out of country uh, exchanges and services that are less susceptible to some of these Canadian rules. I'm sure, but if these uh, you know cryptocurrencies or crowdfunding sources want to be able to do business in Canada, they're going to need to comply with Canadian regs. So um, that's why a lot of the cryptos already are. Um, uh, so it really comes down to cost benefit analysis for those, those institutions. Yeah, no, that's fair. One last question sort of broadly uh, about what's taken place and applied specifically to the financial side, because as, as we've seen, it's really uh, one area where uh, there's some, I think some real significant questions about uh, just how far this might spread and levels of compliance. Are these the kinds of rules that are likely here to stay? You know, you, mm-hmm. we started off by by talking through the kind of measures that are in place with respect to the Emergencies Act, and there's been an emphasis that this is time limited, and you know the kinds of powers there will come sh- for a brief period of time to address the emergency and then go, and then there'll be the various reviews that you've talked about. But given that the Canadian government says it hasn't had these sorts of powers before around crowd, crowdsource funding or, or cryptocurrency. How likely is it that this is this this represents the opening into a whole new area of regulation that once introduced, we're unlikely to see them uh, taken away, these powers taken away? Well, I, I, from what the deputy minister said, it, it seems pretty likely. But I do want to say that what we're talking about here is basically expanding existing regulation that applies to all kinds of financial institutions in Canada to new types of financial institutions that just weren't even in existence when the proceeds of crime and anti-money laundering and terrorism financing act was passed. So, um, and there's been really no, you know, incremental additions to that act, but um, they, there hadn't been a lot of effort to capture these other types of platforms that could be leveraged for money laundering and terrorism financing under that act. So um, one would think it was already overdue. Um, it's, and again, essentially, who we're capturing here um, with the regulations under that act and, and these measures um, wouldn't typically be captured right, in a, in a non-emergency situation, right? Usually registration and compliance with um, the Anti-Money Laundering Terrorism Financing Act is people who are engaged in money laundering and terrorism financing, right? Not people who are providing support through a crowdfunding service to individual Canadian causes. Um, that's not typically how the act is used. It's being... Um, through these measures, we're expanding those kinds of regulations to different types of funding, but that's not normally the case. And I don't suspect that that's the type of thing we're going to see long-term. Okay. Interesting. I mean, this, this area is just so complicated and I guess befitting an area where there's an emergency, um, according to the government under this legislation, moving so rapidly in a way that uh, kind of makes your head spin when compared to other areas of regulation and legislation from government. Leah, thanks so much for for coming on and taking the time to help unpack the the myriad of issues uh, and challenges that that come with the latest steps from the federal government. Well, thanks. And I will just reiterate that 
when it comes to the finance piece, I uh, learn everything I know basically from <laughs> Jessica Davis. So I would encourage people if they really want to get into the weeds on that and understand the specifics to follow her because uh, I'm not the expert <laughs> on that element of things. <laughs> Okay. Well, thanks for that shout out. And we'll put, uh, I'll put a, I'll put a link to her Substack. I am a subscriber, uh, on the show notes for this episode. Right. Thanks again for, for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.